the Dayton shooting recently, the, the uh, shooter's sister was one of the victims. We noticed the connection. Uh, you know, they did this research and they found that more than half of the mass shootings had a known um, history of domestic violence or involvement of domestic violence. We don't know how many of the remaining people had in fact committed domestic violence, but just were never prosecuted for it. I, I just got the quote of the police chief, Richard Beale. Can I read mm-hmm. it to you and have you respond? Yeah, sure. At the press conference, he said, it seems to justify believability that he would shoot his own sister. As a lawyer myself, I'm like, okay, well, he's trying to walk a line and not divulge information, perhaps. But I think it's hard to believe that he didn't know it was his sister. I'm sure that that was uh, part of his motivation. I, I feel confident in that. It's so common that family members are an element. Kim Gandhi is the president of the National Network to End Domestic Violence. The relationship she mentions between domestic violence and mass shootings has hovered over the debate about guns, mental illness, and radicalization for years. No matter their professed motivation, many mass shooters first hurt people, especially women, at home. It's a link that many people don't seem ready to confront. I'm Eamon Ismail, and you're listening to Man Up. On this show every week, we tell honest stories about our lives and investigate where we get our ideas about what it means to be a man. So, a quick note about our intro to today's show. Kim, the police chief, and I all refer to the sibling of the Dayton shooter killed as his sister. But it's since been reported by Splinter and Teen Vogue that he might have been a trans man named Jordan Coffer who was coming out to people around him. The story is still developing, but we wanted to make that clear. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. When Kim was 19 years old in 1970s Louisiana, she was working her first job as a statistician at a phone company where she was excited to sign up for an employee stock option plan. Kind of an old-fashioned 401k. But she couldn't do it on her own. At the bottom of that contract was a space left for her husband's signature. Married women who worked at the time were subject to the head and master law. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's like, oh, wow, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> so I did a little looking into it. This was the days before the internet. But it did say that the husband was the head and master of all of the property. Oh, my and God. That uh, could do with that property as he wished, including the wife's paycheck. She found out this organization that she's never heard of before, the National Organization for Women, or NOW for short, was already working to get rid of this and many other blatantly sexist laws. She soon joined the Louisiana chapter. I mean, we were suing right and left. We had Title IX for Equal Educational Opportunity had gone through Congress in 1972. Title VII for Equal Employment Opportunity had passed Congress in 
also in 1972. And so there were lawsuits galore to be filed because the level of discrimination was just a sort of, I think it would be unthinkable to people today to realize what went on. People just yeah, said, seriously. oh, we, we don't hire women. I mean, that, that was just the answer. We don't hire women. And so several of us from the now chapter all went to law school. Around the same time, Kim got her first exposure to domestic violence, except it didn't even have a name back then. People didn't talk about it, so nobody knew it existed. It was, uh, people called it the, you know, the crime that had no name years later. But um, it wow. actually started in the early 70s in the now chapter in New Orleans, where there had been a series of rapes, and there was a movement nationally starting uh, rape crisis hotlines. And the New Orleans Now chapter wow. heard about it from other Now chapters around the country and said, well, we need one of those in New Orleans. And so they started this, uh, you know, a rape crisis hotline. This was in the old days. Nobody had cell phones. But mm-hmm. we started getting calls from women who had been either sexually assaulted by a husband or partner or just had been beaten by a husband or partner. Oh, and we were like, wait, oh, my goodness. And they called the rape hotline because there was nobody else to call. There were no shelters. There were no programs. I mean, it didn't even have a name. It was we people, uh, I guess Dell's book in 1974 was called Battered Woman. And that's, that's the term that was used at the time. Were domestic abusers ever prosecuted at that time? It was rare, really rare. Yeah, the police would come out sometimes and, you know, they'd walk them around the block. That was just the, you know, come on, fella, you need walk to them cool around off. the block. Yeah, that was a sort of a standard thing. It's like he just needs to cool off. He lost his temper and they'd walk him around the block and he'd apologize and say he'd never do it again. <laughs> and he'd wow. go beat the hell out of her for calling the police. Oh, my God. Which didn't make that mistake again. So in your experience as a, a now a lawyer, I know you, after that, became a district attorney. Were you ever involved in any cases specifically about domestic violence? Oh, oh, many. Uh, I was an assistant DA and I prosecuted the cases and then also as a private attorney represented many, many clients. Uh, the one that is, uh, you know, haunts me to this day was a case of a woman who came to me for help. Uh, she was uh, was being abused and was trying to escape the situation and uh, went to court to try to get a restraining order and the judge denied the restraining order, which was very common at that oh, time. Man. And they had a, a little boy and so she made arrangements for, um, he had visitation, so she made arrangements to exchange the child for visitation at her sister's house um, as a neutral place where she felt more safe. And one day when she took him to drop him off for visitation, as she pulled into the driveway, her husband, you know, raced up in his car and blocked her car. And she had her son in the car and she was afraid he would harm the child. So she jumped out of the car and ran towards the woods behind her sister's house to basically draw him away. Um, And he chased her into the woods and shot her. And shot himself. And she lived miraculously. 
he died. She survived, uh, you know, a long time in the hospital and treatment and whatever, but she did live and discovered that before he did that, he had gone and canceled the mortgage insurance on the house. He had canceled the life insurance. He canceled everything that might have helped her in the event she survived. Um, and we were able to what? get that reversed eventually. But yeah, it was a, it was just a horrifying situation. And she came that close to dying. It was so close. And and as we know, an average of three women a day in the U.S. are killed by husbands or, or partners in domestic violence. Obviously, the news from last weekend, the, the Dayton shooting, felt like it's happened before, which is just like a really upsetting state to feel like we're in. We're in like this groundhog day of gun violence. But... Uh, this nonprofit called Every Town for Gun Safety. They did this survey and found that between January 2009 and December 2017, that mass shooting perpetrators had also shot a current or a former partner or family member almost half the time, 54% of the time. Yeah, I mean, we've we have recognized that for years because, you know, whenever there would be a mass shooting, we'd be like, oh, that's interesting. He was arrested three times for domestic violence before right. he went out and killed all these people. You know, more recently, the that in the Sutherland Springs case where the man shot up the, the uh, Baptist church, it right. turned out to be, it was his ex-wife's family church and um, her grandmother, had, his, his uh, ex-mother-in-law wasn't there, but his grandmother was there that, that day. Um, the estimate is one in uh, one in three or one in four women will be a victim of domestic violence at some point in their lives. It's really a horrifying statistic. You know, just listening to to you just list the numbers, I wonder whether or not you think people are reluctant to accept that gender violence is that much of a pervasive problem. Oh, I, I think many people don't accept it. And they say, oh, that's ridiculous. That's not possible. People who've been victims of domestic violence aren't likely to tell you about it. it there's still an element of shame there yeah. that I don't understand, but I know it exists, that somehow you brought this on or somehow you caused it or there was some inadequacy in you that resulted in you in your being abused. Even if it's a small element, it it means that people don't often tell even their friends that they've been abused. Mm -hmm. They'll offer some other excuse or reason why they are uh, divorced or separated. It almost feels cruel to ask the woman to justify why she was a survivor of gender violence. I, I feel like I should be asking more about, like, what is the root of the male rage behind all of this? Like, why do you think so many men are abusing people in this way? I mean, no, nobody really knows what underlies misogyny or patriarchy or I mean, what the, mm -hmm. what, what the genesis is, but there clearly are a large number of men, large based on um, the one in four figure. By the way, that doesn't mean that one in four men is abusive just because one in four women are victims because many men are serial 
abusers. Right. And you may have multiple, many, large numbers of women sometimes uh, victimized by the same person as a dating partner and then um, as a marriage partner. So often people respond to the one in four figure by thinking about men and saying, oh, one in four women can't be victims because that would mean one in four men are abusers. And I just don't believe that. And that does not, in fact, follow. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you made that distinction. Yeah. And there's a lot of studies on that. A guy named David Lisak in Boston did a, an, an extensive study on rapes. And there are multiple studies that have been done over the years. And the, the majority of rapes are committed by a serial, serial rapist who may commit eight to 10 or more uh, in a lifetime. So you go back to something, I think about, um, I just found this quote from uh, Evan Stark, Dr. Evan Stark, who wrote a book called Coercive Control. And he said, the domestic violence revolution is stalled and the interventions it has spawned are largely ineffective because it has failed to come to grips with coercive control, a mm. pattern of liberty harms that is several orders of magnitude more devastating than the traditional forms of domestic violence that current laws, policies, and programs are designed to manage. I think that was from 2000, so wow. about 20 years ago. And I think that there, there has, uh, there's been a lot of progress in recognizing coercive control and recognizing that domestic violence is frequently involves physical violence, but often doesn't involve physical violence until the other methods of control have failed. Are there other warning signs that you might have noticed in men specifically? Um, something that men could notice in other men potentially or notice in themselves? Well, I mean, one thing is just the, um, the willingness to to put women down, when that kind of talk is really common, then it dehumanizes women. And I think it makes it easier to see women as someone that you might have a right to control because she is such a lesser human wow. than you are. But what we see in um, just in relationship abuse in particular is that you know it's it's prince charming if if it's too good to be true it might actually be too good to be true because that's often how this starts out is oh my god i met this guy who thinks that i am the most amazing creature on the planet he wants to spend every minute with me he doesn't even want me to spend time with my girlfriends or my family because he wants to be with me every second because I'm so incredible. I'm just, I'm on cloud nine. Like mm. there's a couple of red flags right there. Isolation is a very serious red flag. And in terms of maintaining power and control, sometimes isolation combined with some emotional or psychological abuse and maybe economic abuse, uh, you know, withholding funds or saying, you don't need to work, I'm going to take care of you and getting her fired, running up debt, all kinds of various kinds of financial abuse are at work there. He may be able to completely control her 
by just those things and not ever not ever use any kind of physical abuse. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. When you were still a, a district attorney and coming across all of these cases, mm-hmm. um, what were some lessons that you were learning as a prosecutor during those times? One of the things that surprised me at the time, which I understand now but didn't understand then as a young prosecutor right out of law school, is that we would have uh, complaints filed and then they would be withdrawn. Mm. And I would be shocked. This woman was severely beaten. She was she was severely injured. Why does she now not want to prosecute? Why does she not want to testify? I really really did not understand that. I now know that it's because she made an accurate calculation that pursuing the prosecution was going to put her at greater risk. And that happens to this day in part because often not much happens after the prosecution. Right. Unless it's, you know, unless it's murder or attempted murder. If it's just serious abuse, often very little happens. Most victims will tell you that that they don't want him to go to jail. They don't want him to be sent to prison. They just want him to stop hitting them. They just want him to stop abusing them. But but sometimes they don't feel like there's a choice, really. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. Even in this conversation, I'm I'm forgetting the fact that they might be in love. There is a relationship there. Sure. Yeah. This is somebody she married, somebody she had kids with, somebody that she loved, maybe still loves, and and wants to save, wants to figure out how to, how to save her, you know, her kid's father. Kim's career in Louisiana eventually led her to Washington, D.C., where she became the national president of NOW from 2001 to 2009. After that, she turned to the National Network to end domestic violence. I wondered if during those decades she had seen any real change in how people think about and acknowledge domestic violence. There's been a very significant change in public attitudes from the it can't possibly happen uh, in my neighborhood and what did she do to provoke this? That was in the 70s, I would say that was almost a universal response. Very, very seldom do you hear something like that now. Mm. But I guess the sad and frustrating thing is that the numbers don't seem to have changed as much as you would think that they should have, as we have more resources, we have shelters, we have funding, we have laws, we have uh, police departments and judges that are theoretically getting training and understanding domestic violence and dealing with it. But 
They are intractable problems that I think are deeply rooted in um, in misogyny and patriarchy. Even in the way you were describing the attitudes towards it in the past, I, I feel worse knowing that I recognize some of it mm-hmm. today. Uh, so there, are, there's like famous musicians, basketball players, athletes that mm-hmm. are caught on camera, right? Right. The domestic abuse is there for the world to see, but still the the way that they get handled, it almost feels like it's with kids' gloves. They're, they this It feels like people are weighing their value to them over the danger they pose to their their partners. Oh, I think that's quite true, especially with sports figures who you'll often see uh, even women defending them. It's like, oh, she must have done something that that kind of of thing that is surprising and disappointing, but you know it's very real. I think you know the Ray Rice video was a breakthrough in yeah. some ways that you know the nation saw this happening and they saw it over and over and they saw it on video and they saw her being dragged out of the elevator. But all of the people that I work with said. If there hadn't been a video, nobody would have believed it. Right. She would have gone to the police. She would have said, he dragged me out of the elevator by my hair. He punched me. And they would have said, eh, your word against his, uh, you know, we'll arrest him if you want us to, but there's no proof. People really felt that if there had not been a video, no one would have believed it and nothing would have happened. I know that you, your organization is devoted to ending domestic violence on a national scale. Yeah. And a lot of that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of that looks like your advocacy for survivors and mm-hmm. specifically how society treats them with like shelters and giving them a little bit of uh, financial security, mm-hmm. th- those little bits. Uh, but what is the work of reducing domestic violence in men look like? You know, I think, I think society has to take a lot more responsibility about abusive men. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my colleagues, Cindy Southworth, often says, you know, domestic violence is not going to really start changing until people say that cousin Sam is no longer welcome at the family reunion. Right. He's not welcome at Sunday dinner. Like you until people start having consequences from people they care about because of their behavior and until the people in their family start saying, you know, you beat your wife. I I don't, you know, I don't want to see you for Sunday dinner. I'm that's not okay. You're not okay with me. And, and instead, people often do just the opposite. They defend their, their family members and their friends instead of looking at it and saying, wow, that, that's really bad. Right. And we say that often with the, as we work with the sports leagues. For example, the people the players look up to are the other players, the senior players, the better players. And until those folks are saying, hey, that's not okay. That is not okay. It's going to keep happening. Uh, men have to hear from other men. 
So do I have a personal responsibility myself on a cultural level? I think everybody does. Mm -hmm. I think everybody does. I have a personal responsibility. All Mm -hmm. of us, when, when we see something, we ought to say something. If you, you know, if you feel like you can, even if it's just a misogynistic comment, say, wow, I, I don't feel that way about women. Why, why do you, why do you say that? Mm-hmm. Oh, I was just joking. Well, it didn't sound joking. I, you know, no offense, but hey, I think women are terrific. And why would you want to, why would you say things like that? You know, it, it's, it's hard to imagine different situations that you can be in. But sometimes just an it's not okay might make somebody think. I started this conversation with Kim thinking about Dayton and the many other mass shootings before it, where victims included intimate partners or a family member at home. But as Kim told me, there's so much more domestic violence than mass shootings. 70,000 victims are being served in shelters on an average day. One in four women will encounter an abuser. And yet, to me... This often still feels like an invisible problem, a crime with no name. Kim is right. It's all of our responsibility to recognize and respond to it. But I think men in particular have the longest way to go, whether that means calling out a straight comment, not defending an athlete, or refusing to support an abuser, even if he's a family member that you love. If we acknowledge the magnitude of the problem, it's clear that this is the very least we can do. If you recognize something in this episode and need someone to talk to, you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or go to their website, thehotline.org, and start an online chat. Here at Man Up, we love getting emails and voicemails, and we'd love to hear from you too. Got thoughts on this week's episode or maybe got an idea about what to talk about next? Leave a message at 805-626-8707 that's 805-MAN-UP-07. Or email us at manup at slate.com. If you like this episode, please consider supporting The Kid and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Man Up is hosted and written by me, Eamon Ismail. Our producers are Danielle Hewitt and Cameron Drews. Our executive producers are Jeffrey Bloomer and Lowen Liu. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. And June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe because we'll be back next week with more Man Up. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.